Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today we welcome back to Spirit in Action the one and only Jeremy Lent, surely one of the most thorough thinkers and writers trying to help humanity and life itself find a way forward. Jeremy's latest book is The Web of Meaning, and in it he takes a deep dive into life, consciousness, and an open-eyed look at the calamities we're facing, especially the big ones like climate change and mass extinction. Jeremy Lent is an author and integrator, pulling together the various strands of knowledge, thought, and science to see the big picture. His insights are profound, and his writing and speaking are eloquent, and he joins us today via Zoom from Berkeley, California. Jeremy, I'm glad to have you back so soon now after my last visit with you just a month ago. It's great to have you here for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I'm delighted to be here. The more the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. Love our conversations. Well, I have you here for Spirit in Action. It's my belief that your work is about world healing. A lot of people might be tempted to think that mainly what you're about is philosophy. Do you think of yourself as a philosopher, an activist? What do you think of yourself as? Yeah, that is a great question. And actually, if you go to my website, you'll see under my name, it says author and integrator. And I thought about this a lot. And really, my work, a lot of what it's about is to show that these distinctions that we make in our modern culture between different disciplines are really false distinctions. If we talk about philosophy, it's meant to be this thing where you're just thinking about these concepts and not actually being in real life, or theology is meant to be some sort of philosophy about God or whatever, and that's separate from something else, or science is separate from spirituality. And a lot of my work is about showing how all of these things are deeply connected, so much so that you can't really make these distinctions, which is why I call it the web of meaning. It's a web. So as I think about what I actually do, it's really integrating. It's showing these connections between things that most of our dominant culture says are actually separate. Do you think of yourself as an activist in that way, that you, there's actually a world change that you'd like to see come about? Absolutely. I think really one of the big themes in the book itself is to recognize that once we recognize our true place in this whole interconnected web of all the different elements of meaning and ethics and other people's lives and all the stuff that we're connected with, and once we realize what destruction is being done right now, the inequities among other human beings, this incredible, great, awful inequity happening right now in the world, and then the destruction being done to the non-human life forms on this earth, there is really no choice but to be engaged, but to get active. It's as if our identity once we sort of expand it out to include so much more beyond our unique, separate physical body or sense of identity as an individual, once we expand it out, it's as if somebody's hitting your arm and you sort of move it away or you try to protect your arm, not because you go, oh, I should really do something about my arm being hit, but it's just instinctive. You have to do it. It's part of who you are. And similarly, once we identify with life itself in some degree or other, we can't but get involved once we see the destruction taking place. 
it's almost a side note, but you're a vegetarian, I believe, maybe a vegan or not. Well, or? I'm actually, <laughs> this is my moment of true, of true confession. I'm a non-meat eater now, but I'm still eating fish. And this has been a, one of my more challenging journeys, actually, because I, for most of my life, I was uh, happily eating every meat that came my way. And it took years to dawn on me just the moral implications of the fact that I was eating meat, both in terms of the impact on the climate is horrendous. And not to mention the torture that we put other animals through to then kill them to eat their flesh. And as these things began to go deeper and deeper into my being, this became one of my biggest challenges was to overcome what my body was so used to for my entire life and shift in a way that I didn't feel like I was actually causing sort of violence to my own bodily needs by shifting too dramatically. So I'm kind of moving towards vegan at the pace that feels natural I'm still in the process now, but I don't eat meat at this point. And I really respect and admire anyone who's moved further along that path than I have. How long ago did you do this transition? I've been in this transition now for a couple of years. First, it was reducing meat. Then it was just, I keep even a little journal of, you know, how often I ate this meat and that meat and trying to sort of feel, because a, a big part of my sense about transformation is that it's not about just rejecting those parts of us and saying, that's bad. I need to overcome that. Because when we try to do that in any form of transformation, I believe that those parts end up almost causing a rebellion in what I call our own democracy of consciousness. They can be very deeply embedded. My own view is that the path that is most effective is a path of kindness. That's kindness, looking at the overall context and realizing that sometimes changes have to be made to be kind to the greater context, but then trying to do them in a way that doesn't feel like we're doing violence to ourselves. And so that's why it's been this kind of transitional journey rather than, okay, from tomorrow, I'm not eating anything that is bad kind of thing. As you write, Jeremy, in The Web of Meaning, it's such an important part of the worldview, the Western thought, as we'd call it, that has spread to much of the world or almost all of the world. How we think about these things really matters. Exactly. And this way, when we talk about the human relation with other non-humans, there's this um, concept of human supremacy, which is a very powerful concept. It's one that I only just came across when I was doing the research for this book. There's an ecological philosopher called Eileen Christ who writes about it really beautifully. The notion of human supremacy, it relates a lot to this notion of white supremacy. Many of us are very aware now at this stage in our culture development of how white supremacy has caused so much harm, so much damage, so much pain for generations. And when people become aware of white supremacy and they try to open up to it, they begin to realize that actually white supremacy, in addition to hurting the people who are being oppressed by it, it actually hurts the people who are doing the oppression because you actually get embedded in a structure of violence, and then you become afraid of those who you're exploiting, and then you kind of limit your own sense of connectedness. It's not like some sort of thing where those supremacists gain at the expense of the people they're exploiting. Everybody loses in a system of white supremacy. And the same is true of human supremacy. Once we realize that actually, it's not necessarily true that humans have an intrinsic right to just do whatever we want to the world. We don't necessarily have a right to do this incredible coal mines where you just kind of slash and burn like mountaintops just to get to the coal more easily, or to take hundreds of miles of trawler nets and just destroy everything in its path just so you can catch your fish a little bit more economically. That is not right. We don't have a right to do that. And that's what human supremacy 
like recognizing that as an ideology really gets us to start looking at it in different ways. I'm glad that you brought that up, Jeremy. And folks, we are speaking with Jeremy Lent today. His website, jeremylent.com, and his other website is leology.org. Uh, Lee Eastern Concept, we'll talk about later, leology.org. Both those links are on northernspiritradio.org. I'm really glad that you brought up this whole justification. It's not right that we'll level tops of mountains so we can get out the coal or whatever like that. Because as I see it, you're a non-theist. Your religious spiritual outlook is more towards Eastern, that is to say Confucianism and Taoism and various mixtures of those things, Buddhism. Those religions are generally non-theist, at least as, as we conceive of that in the West. Then the question becomes, what is the source of morality and ethics? Right. And I think in the web of meaning, you take us to those places, but is there a short form of saying it without going 400 pages? <laughs> yeah, I think there is really. And first off, I guess the only thing I would say is to some degree, I consider myself a pantheist. So there is a theism there. But a pantheist in the sense that saying that I really see the divinity in the universe expressed in all aspects of the universe. And so I do see myself actually as a religious person, but not one that sees the source of divinity as being separate from everything else around me. I see it actually being imminent in what we experience in the world. Then to get to your point, the particular form of really the divinity that we experience on this earth I see is coming from life itself. And so a lot of the book is actually looks at what life is, how life actually emerged through a self-organized process on this planet billions of years ago. And this recognition that even within each of us, that, that we have these 40 trillion cells in each of us, that as we begin to unfold our identity and ask our questions about what am I, who am I, where am I? The answer that, in my view, starts sort of arise, and what I try to sort of take the reader through, is ultimately we can say that I am life. It's not just that I am alive, but I am life, and I'm part of this flow that has basically been an unbroken flow of life, this kind of fountain of life that wants to like replicate itself and keep growing and really fights against the forces of entropy for billions of years on this earth. So to me, I see life itself as really being like the divinity as expressed on this planet, in this earth. And once you begin to recognize that, then it leads to the sense that I really think in many ways, um, the great humanitarian Albert Schweitzer summarized maybe better than almost anything I've seen in the 20th century, when he said at some point, I am life that wills to live in the midst of life that wills to live. And he himself said, you know, as a result, I cannot but have reverence for all of life. That feels to me like the foundation. It's not like a foundation we have to sort of pluck from the air and say, oh, God says this or that. But it's actually something that our own being actually leads us to. And it's something that is as much scientifically valid as it is ethically valid which is really part of where I go in this book, that we don't need to make these false distinctions between what science tells us and what our own ethical standards tell us. This isn't exactly pushback, but I think it's further justification that is important to have. Having reverence for life is not the same as being unwilling to kill. That's right. And in fact, a very important part of life is that cycle of life, which involves death. 
again, in the web of meaning, you approach this on so many different levels. Some people might be attracted to the philosophical side of it, but there's also the the root scientific things, cells reusing parts of cells and cells, yes. parts which are cooperating with themselves and recycling and, and then cells externally, you know, this cell doesn't have a use because the way that it's self-organizing it, okay, we'll take these parts of these cells and reconstruct them into this and on, on up to larger animals. That's right. It seems to me that just saying reverence for life still kind of ignores the need for how do you determine morality? Because it's okay to kill. Then what is the thing about killing that we can separate into good or bad or morality or something we want to discourage or something I don't want to be part of? Excellent question. I believe we can learn a lot from what indigenous values around the world evolved in over many millennia. You know, we as humans spent 95% of our species life as nomadic hunter-gatherers. And all around the world, I think, those groups developed a way of relating to the living earth that I think have some profound lessons for us. And so many indigenous groups, probably I'd say perhaps virtually all of them, they absolutely had to kill as part of their survival, as part of their normal way of life. But when they killed other beings, they did so with a sense of the dignity and the sacredness of the spirits of those beings. So they wouldn't just kill in this viewing the other animal as being just sort of a machine or just a resource there for them to like take advantage of. In many cases, they'd pray to the spirit of the being that they killed. They would revere that spirit. And they would understand that spirit as being as moving into being part of the earth around them. That kind of way of thinking also led them to develop ecologically very sustainable and regenerative ways of living with their environment. So in many places, indigenous cultures, say like in the Northwest of the United States, destroyed the salmon runs. They had the ability, the, the technology to kill as much salmon as they wanted, but they recognized that it should be done in a way that was more attuned with the cycles of the seasons and with the cycles of life. And you see that elsewhere in other parts of the world, in Aboriginal cultures in Australia, and they would use fishnets to catch fish in the stream, but they made the size of those fishnets quite large so that the smaller fish that were young would be able to go through and would be saved and would be able to live and grow. And only the biggest fish would actually be caught there. So all of these different ways was a ways in which indigenous cultures learned to attune with the natural world. Even while they were killing, uh, being part of the ecology, they were doing it in a way that actually led to an increased richness and abundance of life around them rather than destroying it. And there's a lot more detail than that in the book by Jeremy Lent, The Web of Meaning, and also in his previous book, which I interviewed him about a few years ago called The Patterning Instinct. One of the things, by the way, Jeremy, I have to give you quite a bit of applause for. You don't answer questions blithely and simply you actually look at the counter arguments. And I'm not saying you're doing it as an argument, but you're trying to ask yourself, it appears to me, well, what about this? What about this? Do I think this? So it's not like you're arguing with someone else. It's that you're seeking full knowledge. So you're making the best decision possible. So you talked about people, hunter gatherers as being compassionate towards the environment and being smart about the cycle of life. And yet what it looks like is the places where people move to Australia, the Americas, all the big mammals got killed at the same time that people seem to have shown up. That's right. So does that mean that we were just jerks at that time? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and and thank you for starting that question out by this recognition that I try to do in the book is not get stuck in sort of easy answers and just take a position and then try to ignore the other position. But exactly to your point, this is one of the issues that I explore in some detail in the book, because these are the questions that I went through as I did my own trying to uncover where do values come from and what do we mean by these things? And so what you say is absolutely right. That when humans left Africa, we're talking about you know tens of thousands of years ago, basically every continent we went to, whether it was Australia, North and South America, you name it, there was these extinctions of the great, what called the megafauna that happened as humans got there. And it wasn't like right now, it would be like send in the artillery, machine guns, like sort of and shoot everything down. Nothing like that at all. These were things that would have happened over generations without the people who were moving into these areas realizing what they were doing. These extinctions ultimately happened as a result of the imbalance between the human power that arose from humans having this cognitive capability and developing technology. It's so the imbalance between human power and the rest of the natural world to defend itself. You don't see these great extinctions happening in Africa so much until more recent times, because the animals co-evolved with humans. So as humans got smarter and more technologically capable, animals learned to be more afraid of these kind of puny little animals that would otherwise not be so formidable. But of course, in the other continents, they didn't do that. This is what I find so fascinating, that when these indigenous cultures, as time went on and they caused these mass extinctions, somehow they developed a kind of a communal wisdom to recognize they needed to act in ways that would allow a more sustainable way of being. And so some of those practices that I'm talking about, you see them all around the world. You see them when um, the Polynesians got to Hawaii and rather than sort of leads to new extinctions in that island, they developed sacred places where you didn't go and they kept the ecology so abundant that they could actually grow in size on that island. Its human population is quite large and still keeping it really fertile and abundant. So a sort of a collective wisdom evolved of living more in harmony with the world. And that, I think, is a key thing to recognize. Because a lot of time people say, humans, you know, this destruction, it's like the human tragedy. So this kind of path of collapse that maybe we're headed on, all this destruction, is just innate to humanity with nothing we can do about it. We're fated to just destroy our own, our own earth. I don't believe that's the case. I believe that as humans, we have the ability to recognize what is going on in the ways in which we're using power over the rest of the living earth. We have the ability to use that same cognitive brilliance that gives us the technology and to use that to actually learn how to integrate with the rest of life on earth and how to actually learn nature's own secrets of symbiosis, of mutually beneficial living together and apply those kind of principles to the rest of life. Folks, there are a whole lot of environmental intelligence lessons that you'll gain from reading The Web of Meaning by Jeremy Lent. You mentioned, Jeremy, Chinese ways of thought, and you know, they're, they're protecting themselves from the Mongols, so therefore they ended up devastating a lot right. of forests and that kind of thing. It's my opinion from reading both The Web of Meaning and The Patterning Instinct you certainly gravitate towards Eastern ways of thinking, Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism, those thoughts. And you do hold up with high praise, indigenous ways of thinking as well. So you seem to look really positively on those. And I would say that I don't exactly want to say you denigrate, but the Judaism you grew up around, the Christianity I grew up around, 
I'd say that the Abrahamic faiths and the ways of thinking of the West, the theology of the West, you think less positively of. It's not black and white. Mm-hmm. It's not black and white. But it seems to me that you hold up a Neo-Confucianism way of thinking holds more promise for the world in terms of seeing the connections and living in more harmony with the world. Has it worked out that way? That's my question. <laughs> As you talked about the forests in China and rivers being wiped out, the suffering of the people, the equality, has it actually worked that way with other religions? I don't think that we can say it has, quite honestly. I mean, any of these other cultures that we look at, indigenous cultures in the past, or early Chinese civilization, or essentially any way you look, we see all kinds of oppression, all kinds of harm being done in many ways. What I take from that is there is no such thing as a golden age. There is no such thing as one particular culture, whether it's indigenous culture or some East Asian culture or whatever, that we need to look at and say, that's our future. That's, we should all sort of go back to that way of life or that way of thinking, and then everything will be okay. I think we right now are in a place where our human civilization is kind of on the rocks. As I see it, we are sort of unraveling because of these imbalances that we have created in our world right now, both in our society and in the human relationship with the earth. This is a place where we need to use the accumulated human wisdom from all around the world, whatever we can get it from scientific thought, from other spiritual traditions. And we need to bring it together and synthesize, like integrate a new path forward that could actually lead us to a different way of living together as human beings on this earth. And so my approach to this is not to say, well, look at the ancient Taoist, how cool, if if only we all sort of went back in the time machine and lived like like those. No, I don't believe that's the case. The Song Dynasty, which is the source of some of what I think are some of the greatest thinkers, some of the most brilliant, fully integrated ideas of understanding the the cosmos I've ever seen in human history. Some of these neo-Confucian thinkers I refer to in the book, that was also the same period that instituted foot binding for women, one of the cruelest, most oppressive practices we've ever seen in history. So in all these cases, I think what we need to do is we need to look at how we move forward, not how we try to sort of go back. And we need to recognize the positive elements, the life-affirming elements that different cultures, different philosophers tell us, and then really weave it together in a new form of sense-making that could actually lead humanity into a harmonious path within ourselves and with all of life into the future. Folks, we're going to delve deeper into the thought of Jeremy Lent and his book, The Web of Meaning. I've interviewed him previously about his book, The Patterning Instinct. But first, I want to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action website, northernspiritradio.org, with 16 plus years of our visits with people about both activism and music. Come on the site, post your comment, let us know what you're thinking, give us recommendations recommendations, look at the stations across the country where we're carried or connect via our podcast, all the different ways you can connect. But we do really want to encourage your connection with us. I think 
one of the biggest problems in the U.S. and with our modern culture is the lack of connection. The deeper we can get in connection to one another, the better off we're going to be. And Jeremy Lent's going to say a lot more about that before we disconnect today for Spirit in Action. On our website, there's also a place for you to donate. This work is supported by you, the listener, not by corporations, not by government, because they carry a lot of interest with them. I'm very interested in supporting humanity and life, I think, as Jeremy Lent represents it. Also support the radio stations that carry this. Again, there's some 42 stations nationwide that carry our programs. They provide this invaluable source of news and music of local flavor that is well worth supporting. So please, with your hands, with your wallet, support them and then help Northern Spirit Radio out if you can. Jeremy Lent is here, jeremylent.com and leology.org. Both those links on northernspiritradio.org. Let me talk a little bit more about big picture for the book. Number one, Jeremy, you're some seven years younger than I am, and I'm pretty sure you've read about four times as many books. Maybe you haven't read as much science fiction as I have. I've read a lot of that and comic books. I got that in in my teens. But the bibliography people will find in the web of meaning is extensive and deep and wide ranging. But one of the things that I discovered as I've read through both of your books is you're bringing out things that I can tell you whether, you know, my, when my vegetarianism happened, but I can also tell you when I, because I was a physics teacher, I realized I had the aha balloon went up over my head when I realized that life is negative entropy. Mm -hmm. I remember about 30, 40 years ago when I had that thought I recognized reductionism when I had that thought. And there's many more things on your list. In the early 90s is when I started studying chaos theory. It was about 1991 when I realized I, had, I was sitting in a Quaker meeting for worship and I had the clear understanding about fractals. And you can write this in your next book, okay? That's when I realized that fractals as they occur throughout all of time and space. What I believe is true, and this is not a metaphor, but a factual thing, is that the same relationship that exists between each cell of our body and the whole of our body is the same relationship that exists between us and the thing that sometimes gets called God. Mm -hmm that we are fractals of the divine. And so your ideas about sacredness of life and we are life and all of that, it makes perfect sense to me. But I had that thought in 1990 and 91. And so in a lot of ways, as I read through your book, it feels to me like you have written more eloquently than I could ever say all of those key understandings that lead me to my own worldview. So I feel like you're a brother. Well, thank you, Mark, so much. That that's really affects me quite deeply. And you know, just one thing I would say about that in terms of this book as a whole is that I don't feel that in the book I have pushed the envelope in some new direction where I'm saying, like, here's how I've made sense of things and I've I've sort of added this up in some way that is now new, that nobody else has looked at it this way before. Quite the contrary. What I feel I've really just done is kind of do my own weaving of all the great insights, all the great senses that people have um, that are already out there. That what I've noticed is that there are brilliant thinkers in the areas of biology, in the areas of evolutionary biology, of systems thinking, of um, deep ecology, of people applying Buddhism to the modern world, to engagement 
look at Pope Francis, people applying Catholic theology to the systems integration and to all these different things. What I'm trying to do in the Web of Meaning is then take these great insights from so many others and weave them together into this recognition that it's all an integrated whole. And so when I hear people say to me, just like you said, that yes, this book is saying something that I've really felt I've known for a long time. That feels to me like real validation of what I've been trained to do is just give voice, give a fully integrated voice to all of those deeply felt insights that millions of us have had around the world. So many of us look at what the modern worldview tells us. It tells us that humans are separate from each other. It tells us that we're all selfish. It tells us nature is just a machine and a resource to exploit. And millions of us around the world feel that that's wrong. And we might have a particular insight or a particular specialty where we know that's wrong from our particular area. But then it's very difficult for us to argue against what every single talking head tells us on TV, on the internet, and the articles we read in the newspaper and all that stuff. So we sort of just quieten down and it doesn't feel right, but there's not much more we can do. What I'm trying to do is offer a true, cohesive, coherent, scientifically valid platform for all of those of us who believe there is something else going on to actually build from. In order to do that, I just want to give a few little tidbits from the book. I mentioned entropy and negative entropy. A lot of people may not even know what entropy is because they weren't physics teachers like I was. Entropy is a big deal. It's one of those laws of the universe that is represented as the universal law of entropy. And then when I had the insight that, wait a minute, life is negative entropy, this dramatically shifted what I thought was the rule of the universe. Say a little bit about that. Yes. You know, this is a sort of a key theme. And actually, I go into it in some detail in one of the chapters called The Deep Purpose of Life. To your point about entropy, that was so universal that like Albert Einstein actually looked at that rule and said, if any law of physics will never be overturned, in the entire future of, of any understanding, it's going to be that law of entropy, which basically says that, you know, if you scramble an egg, you can't put the egg back together again. And ultimately, what physicists tell us is the whole universe, you know, hundreds of billions of years from now, even trillions of years from now, will end up in this kind of heat death where there's, everything moves apart from each other. And life basically is a rebellion against entropy. That's what I find so amazing, that when life first began on Earth, it essentially took all of this energy around it, and it began to establish little edits of organization to actually reorganize things back into a form that actually worked. And then those protocells that figure out how to do that actually learned to do it a little bit better and a little bit better. And that really is a source of evolution. And evolution by natural selection, as Darwin talked about, absolutely valid, but from a grander scheme of it, evolution began with those protocells the, the ones that were more successful at fighting against entropy were the ones that ended up replicating themselves, and it went on from there. And this was something that actually was first written about by a physicist, actually, who wrote this great book, What is Life, back in the 1940s. His name is Schrodinger, and he was a Nobel Prize winning physicist. And he had a cat, didn't he? <laughs> right, exactly. Schrodinger's cat. The, the very one and the same. It's almost like it took a physicist to really get to the source of biology which is this life does have a purpose. And the purpose is to maintain this local rebellion on earth against the forces of entropy. So then we can get to realize 
And this is the thing I was saying earlier, this recognition of our own identity, that each of us as living entities are kind of part of this unfolding four billion year old rebellion that we ourselves began billions of years ago. Because in, in a way, we're not just these separate identities, Jeremy and Mark and somebody listening right now, but in a greater context, all of us are life. We started this rebellion billions of years ago, and we're going to keep doing it for most likely billions of years into the future. And once we see that, we get to see the vast scope of what we're doing. Then once we actually really feel the implications of that, what is so disturbing is we discover that our own civilization, our own global technologically advanced civilization is actually a force of entropy, is actually destroying the richness and the abundance that life has developed over these billions of years to find, essentially, we can think of every ecosystem, every ecology, all that richness we see around us as life figuring out the more and more complex, sophisticated ways to maintain the rebellion. And then here we are, as humans, so proud of ourselves, slashing and burning all that life has created over these billions of years. Another key concept that you talk about, Jeremy, in the book is reductionism. And I was very pleased at the end, by the way, where you drew out the difference between the reductionistic way of thinking and scientific thinking, because a lot of people conflate them. Yes. And there's overlap, but there is not identity and the, the lack of identity is very important. So could you talk a little bit about reductionism, which, by the way, I give you high plaudits for because you speak about all of the power and change and the important effect, how, how well it has worked. And a lot of people who are on the fuzzy thinking side of the world don't like to give science and it's the reductionistic approach, it's due credit and you do. Absolutely. And it deserves it. And basically reductionism is an approach to science that got developed in the 17th century with people like Descartes and Newton and Francis Bacon and others that says we can find out more about the world if we break it down into its tiny little parts and study those parts. And that is an incredibly effective way of making sense of the world. Reductionism, say in biology, led people to go down to the discover cells and then within the cells discover DNA and all those discoveries. And reductionism in chemistry led people to really look at the physics of how things work. And physics led, led us to discover then things like electrons and protons and all these stuff that allows technology to exist right now. So the development of things like antibiotics, our ability to speak together right now over thousands of miles and see each other's faces over Zoom. All that is the result of the incredible successes of reductionism. So as you say, it's something we need to celebrate, one of the great triumphs of the human project, really. But here's the thing, scientists, and then it sort of spreads out of science, that they got so taken by the success of reductionism that they then made this ontological leap of faith, this sort of leap of faith about the existence of reality and said, reductionism works so well that everything in the universe can be explained by breaking it down into its discrete parts. And in fact, not only can everything be explained, but there's no other explanation that makes any sense. So reductionism went from being a scientific method to being a leap of faith, which is every bit of as much as a leap of faith as somebody saying, there is a God who created the universe and he has got a flowing beard or whatever people might say that they believe something and then they fit everything into it. And that's where reductionism parts company with science. 
because science is basically a methodology for really understanding the world. And it has values. People think science is values-free, but actually it has values like transparency and openness and investigation and respect to investigate other people's ideas and the ability to come up with a theory and then disprove that theory. Those are all part of the values and methodology of science. But science also developed other forms of looking at things apart from reductionism. And those are what we can think of as system sciences, like what you've been talking about, like systems, complexity theory, chaos theory, or even things like network theory, sciences that look at the connections between things rather than just the things themselves. And so what people in system sciences say is not that this reductionism is wrong or invalid, but that in addition to looking at the parts, we need to look at the relationship between the parts to really understand our universe. And that's all that basically I'm saying in the book, but that leads to amazingly powerful implications once we start focusing our attention on those relationships rather than the things themselves. I think that a lot of our listeners for Spirit in Action would like Jeremy Lent to point at the bad guy. You don't seem to do that exactly, but it's clear that you have your criticism, your difficulty with reductionism, capitalism, and this worldview, which sees only part of how we operate, that there is competition, right? Evolution, people talk about nature, bloody and tooth and claw, and get focused on that part of it, and they ignore the corporation. People get involved in capitalism, and they forget that socialism is also a part of what's good in the world, that we need roads and libraries and internet, it doesn't seem to me that you steadily point at any one thing as the problem, but I'd like you to do that now. <laughs> well, I think that at the deepest layer, we can look at the problem with a capital P as being separation, seeing ourselves as separate. That applies in many different ways through history and in our current society. So really, it's the forces of separation that led humans to first see themselves as being separate from nature with agriculture. And then with the scientific revolution, this notion that seeing nature is just this machine to exploit. But it's also right around that same time that we see the beginnings of processes like capitalism and colonialism and white supremacy. All of these ultimately are ideologies of separation, saying that I see myself as separate from others around, and those others as being inferior and not worthy of me trying to reach out and empathize or be compassionate. So much so that if I have power over those others, I should use that power to exploit them as much as possible. And not only is it not bad to do that, but it's actually good to do that because these sort of ideologies of supremacy say, I am better than those others. Whether it's white people saying they're better than people who are not white, Europeans saying they're better than those who are not Europeans, or humans saying we're better than those that are non-humans. So when we look at processes, which I think right now are hugely destructive of the world, such as global capitalism, capitalism basically is just the economics of that way of thinking. It's the economics that is the inevitable product of that, that says basically we need to use capital to exploit others, everything else there as resources. And it led to this formation of corporations, which have really taken over the world as a force. We're not looking at individuals now. We're not talking about a conspiracy theory of, oh, those are the bad guys who are taking over. But corporations as a force have become this global system 
of destruction and devastation, where they are created with the objective of maximizing shareholder profits above all else and growth in those profits as fast as possible. And they do that through exploiting nature and exploiting other human beings as much as possible and to do it as quickly as possible. So this is the force that we are subject to right now. Imagine like a corporation that asks that is told that we have to give them the rights of persons as though they're actual persons. But if they were persons, they'd be psychopaths. Because it's only a psychopath that goes around saying, I want to do something that is just for my benefit and screw everything else. There's absolutely zero interest in any other thing other than use it to my benefit. And yet here we are in a world where basically, if you look at the hundred largest economies of the world, 69 out of those hundred are not countries, but transnational, multinational corporations. That is the kind of elephant in the room that we need to recognize and actually look at ways to change our structures of society and economy to move towards a society that is not based on wealth extraction in that way. I find myself in sympathy with so much of what you write in The Web of Meaning, Jeremy, and I occasionally engage in pushback. So one of the questions I have is, do we have clear documentation that with this capitalistic viewpoint, the reductionist, the separationist way of thinking that we've brought to the world, has that actually increased our separation? Because I can imagine back thousands of years ago, when the identity was usually involved in a clan, a family or a clan, a very small group. My understanding is that violence over the centuries, percentage-wise, has actually decreased consistently from generation to generation, including during World War II, including all these other things which we see as cataclysmic. Because before, when you had a clan of 20 people and you had over a year, maybe some interaction with another clan, you killed one out of 20 people, that is 5% mortality in one year. So I'm not sure that our separation has increased as much as you might think of, considering the ridiculous idea that we should all be selfish and so on like that. Because in fact, we now see us as a much bigger us than we used to. Yes. Well, I think that is actually the hopeful path that we're on. Is I do think that there is a greater increasing sense of human identity, of seeing ourselves as one species, which I'd love to explore. But before I do that, just to go back to the original point that you're saying there, there's a few things that you're touching on that we need to kind of unpack just a little bit. A lot of what you're saying, I think, has been written most eloquently by Steven Pinker in this book, The Better Angels of Our Nature where he very assiduously pulls together hundreds of pages of analysis talking about what you're describing, like a reduction in violence in human history. There's a couple of very important points that he missed out in that book that we need to actually look at. One is that, in fact, if you look at nomadic hunter-gatherers, of which we spent 95% of human species as that, you actually don't see this kind of violence that we're talking about. Where the groups that anthropologists discover that are those percentage of deaths are become really high is in societies that are known as horticultural societies. Now, that might seem like a very subtle difference. What's the difference between one or the other? If you go to New Guinea, or if you look at the Yanomami tribe, for example, in South America, well, aren't they kind of like hunter-gatherers? Actually, they're horticulturalists. And what that means is these are people who have settled and laid claim to particular areas where they grew stuff and developed their own possessions and began to settle. And it's with the settling that you get the rise in things like 
hierarchy is and they're actually the rise in patriarchy and the sense of separation and then wanting to battle against the group is over there that maybe you want to like steal their women or steal their crops or whatever they had. Nomadic hunter-gatherers did not relate to other groups like that. They would tend to be much more peaceable. And if they were feeling threatened in some place, they would kind of move on somewhere else rather than get involved in this kind of violent act of aggression. So that's one very big distinction that is important to point out because people often miss that. But here's the thing. When we also look at the reduction in violence as kind of norms, which I think is something to be celebrated, we tend to miss out the fact that a lot of the violence has been kind of exported. So what you see is if you look at, say, in England, from the 16th to the 17th to the 18th, the 19th to 20th century, you have these charts showing these incredible reductions in the likelihood that somebody would be murdered in the street. That's wonderful. But meanwhile, that was to some great degree a large result of the fact that the violence was exported to the colonies, where basically we had the most massive genocides ever in human history, where when the so-called new world was discovered, actually there were people living in that new world and 95 to 99% of those people then got destroyed through a combination of sickness and violent murder and massacres over just a few generations. And that same kind of genocidal activity has continued to take place. But what happens is those of us in the global north that enjoy lives of privilege get to be separated more and more from it. So for example, you know, we were talking earlier before we started the interview about your experiences in Central Africa, where these corporations are basically have these strangleholds over whole populations to mine the rare earths and the diamonds in the earth in those places for our cell phones. So we can feel really like we're not taking part in any violence when we go to the Apple store and buy the, the cell phone. And then we might go online and buy a, a burger somewhere and feel like our lives are completely violence-free. But meanwhile, the violence has been pushed out of our sight. So the people who are enslaved in Africa, living utterly desperate, desolate lives as a result of these incredible inequities, the animals that are being destroyed and tormented so that we can have our cheap burger are kind of conveniently kept away from us. And we can then say, well, things don't know what you're talking about. When we really truly expand our identity to look at all of life, we get to see that the picture is a lot murkier than people like Steven Pinker would like it to be. There's a lot of murk out there. You know, I really think that you and I could talk for many, many more hours. And I would like to talk to Jeremy Lent that long, folks. But we're going to fit this into a 55-minute Spirit in Action program, except for the bonus excerpts that you'll find on our website. So northernspiritradio.org, you can see a full unedited version of my interview with Jeremy, and you can also find the 55-minute program. There are a couple things that I did want to tie up with, Jeremy. One of the questions I have, or actually maybe it's, it's really feedback that I want to give you, what I've learned from what I've observed of history and of human communities, whatever their size, that even when you have wonderful spiritual ideas, the ideas that you talked about that rose out of China or out of India, where they run into problems is when they get into power. I think the Christianity and, and the, what Jesus had to say has a whole lot of positive stuff to it. And when Constantine made it the official religion, all of a sudden you had justification for war and killing and violence that isn't at all reflected in the actual teachings of Jesus. 
So I tend to think that one of the biggest issues that we have to deal with and have to grapple with is how do you deal with power? And that is to a physical, dominating, violent power. Well, I think that what we need really is to recognize that there are different forms of power in human life and in the world. And one form of power is that dominant power, that power over that has just kind of ratcheted up all the times from agrarian civilizations to the present day, when it seems almost like insuperable. There's nothing we can do against these massive forces of state power, military power, and the power of the billionaires and all that stuff. But there is another form of power that exists in the human condition. It might sound woo-woo to some people, but the simple answer is it's the power of love. When I talk about the power of love, I'm talking about the power of deep human connection between each of us and others around us. It's that realization of our connectedness. And when we look at that power, we get to see that that power is actually so universal. It has the potential to counter and even transform all of those other power structures we've been talking about. It's the power that when George Floyd is murdered, that people all around the world look at that and they're outraged and they say, no, that is absolutely unacceptable because they feel an empathic connection. They have a sense of what is right and wrong, which again comes from our human evolution. As humans, we evolved to feel a sense of fairness, to feel a sense of group identity, to feel a sense of anger and outrage when somebody takes advantage of others. And when we expand that power, when we feel into our own hearts and then connect that with others around us, it's that networked power of compassion and care and outrage at the injustices. When it becomes networked, the network itself becomes unbelievably powerful. There's even a law called Metcalfe's Law, which talks about how the power of a network is the square of the number of connections. So each time you connect up, you have three connections, you get to nine. If you have four connections, you get to 16. You get this exponential power arises when enough of us connect up and share our sense of core human values and say that we're not going to accept these kind of oppressive structures we see around us. That's the kind of power that each of us has. And once we recognize it, there's no telling what can be done to transform our future. We're just scratching the surface of the deep content that Jeremy Lent presents in The Web of Meaning. I've got two last questions. The first one, though, is how do you achieve and promote change? You've got this book out there. It represents, I think, bringing together the most invaluable ways of thinking, most promising outlook for our world. How do we actualize it? So what do my listeners to Spirit in Action need to do so that we can become part of the symbiocene that you envision in the book? Yes, such a wonderful question. And basically, it's quite easy once we realize that this is something that we can each do by visualizing the kind of world we want to be part of and living into it ourselves. There's a great systems thinker called Otto Schirmer who talked about this notion of living into the emerging future or living into the future you want, which means basically each of us living day by day according to the principles that we would love to see our entire society to live by. One way we can think about it is sort of thinking of our whole engagement with the web of meaning as coming in different concentric circles. There's our engagement within ourselves and our close family, with community around us and our society, and then engagement with all these great systems on the earth, the political systems and all else. Anybody who's looking at the climate breakdown we're facing, 
of the power of corporations that are destroying the earth right now. We need to realize it's only when millions or even hundreds of millions of us start to make our voices heard together that those changes will actually happen. And it's easy enough to say, well, that's just too big. You know, I'm just one little voice, nothing I can do about it. So let me just focus on what I need to stay alive and, and thrive myself. But here's the thing. None of us knows which part of our own activities gets to have this bigger nonlinear impact on all these systems around us. But what each of us does is part of this deeply interconnected web. It's as if you're going out into the forest and you see a web actually there on the, on the tree. And you know that one little raindrop will reverberate through that web and cause these vibrations that you can't really predict in all different parts of the web. Similarly, every action we take and every conversation we have has some impact on this overall complex web that is basically the future we're creating. And that has some implication for why the title of Jeremy Lent's book is The Web of Meaning. There's, again, so much depth. We've just skimmed the surface here. One last question, Jeremy, and that is, do you have an actual physical Uncle Bob? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, for those people who haven't yet delved into the book, the book begins with this conversation with this Uncle Bob, who is incredibly annoying. And, some, and it's, a, it's a party and people are talking about, oh, we could got to change the world. And Uncle Bob says, let me tell you a thing or two. I've been around the block. It's not like that. We're all basically selfish and nothing you do is going to make a difference. So let's just kind of shut it all down. Of course, we've all had those conversations. I must confess, I can count a number of different conversations I've had in the past, maybe with um, relatives or just other friends in group gatherings or whatever, where I felt that sense of frustration and like, that's not the way it is. But then you kind of block and you don't know where to go. And so Uncle Bob is a little bit of a composite, if you will of uh, different people I've had the pleasure to interact with over the years. Well, Jeremy Lent's book, The Web of Meaning, is more than a repost to Uncle Bob. <laughs> it, it is a deep dive into reality and existence and the purpose for which we are here, the purpose of life, a sense of belonging and connection, all of that and more via jeremylent.com, leology.org. Both of those websites are linked on northernspiritradio.org. Again, Jeremy, it's such a wonderful ride. It's so much depth and fulfillment and clarity and insight that I get from your writing and from having you join me as you did today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mark. I just want to thank you for asking those deep questions because the depth that we get to explore in this conversation only arises out of you really looking at those questions that need to be answered that allow us to uncover where we went to. So thank you. You're very welcome. And again, thanks to Jeremy Lent for joining me today. The links are on northernspiritradio.org. And please join us next week again for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 